very, very special welcome to those of you who are here, who are new to this community, and possibly new to Jesus. I'm often attracted by a story in Luke chapter 15 that starts out, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around Jesus to hear him. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. We are a community that acknowledges that we not only want to gather around Jesus, but we gather around Jesus as people in need of him. Would you join me in a prayer? Lord Jesus Christ, as I lead this community of people coming from different places with different thoughts about you into part of your story, we pray that through the story, your spirit would work in us, work on our minds, work on our hearts, work on our wants, work on our wills in such a manner that we might experience in you real life, our true self, and the glorious joys of your grace and your love and your kingdom. For the praise of your glory, amen. This morning, I want to invite you to join a private gathering of the first disciples of Jesus as Jesus asks them a question that he asks of each of us. Who do you say that I am? I want to join this gathering not to fill you with fear that you might answer the question wrongly. Rather, I want to join this gathering with you so that we see together how Jesus asks this question and why he does so. By looking at this private gathering, which is actually a private gathering of prayer, more closely and hearing Jesus' question more clearly, my hope is that we will welcome Jesus to ask us this question often, even daily in our lives before him. So let's join this private gathering by turning to Luke 9, verses 18 through 27, where Jesus asked the question, who do you say that I am? For those of you that don't have an app on your phone or don't have your own Bible, uh, you can turn to a Bible in your pew on number 841. Luke 9, verses 18 through 27. Once, when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you? Jesus asked. Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell 
anyone. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then Jesus said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before, the see, before they see the kingdom of God. As we enter into this private gathering, we read first that Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him. In the Gospel of Luke, we often see Jesus praying. Such times of prayer are especially mentioned by Luke in his Gospel before Jesus makes important decisions. Let me give two examples that will help us think of our own prayer life. First, when the crowds were coming out to John the Baptist to be baptized, Jesus too came. We read in Luke 3, quote, When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Second, before choosing the disciples, his 12 disciples, he spent a night in prayer. We read in Luke 6, one of those days Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them whom he also designated apostles. Jesus maintained a close fellowship with his Father, a fellowship of mutual love, of mutual pleasure through prayer. It was the will of Jesus to do his Father's will, to do what pleased his Father. This required significant times of fellowship together. As a result of this particular time of prayer in Luke 9, the story we're looking at, Jesus is led in prayer to ask his disciples an important question. Do you have such times of prayer with your triune God? A core reality for every Christian is that Jesus has brought us near to God through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross so that we can draw near to God in prayer. In Ephesians 2, we read, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away from God 
have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For through Christ Jesus, we have access to the Father by one Spirit. If you have received Jesus, he has brought you near to our triune God so that you might experience eternal fellowship with him now. In my shared office, I have this picture. I have this picture of Jesus standing at the door of someone's house and knocking. It is a picture based on his words to Christians found in the book of Revelation. Jesus says to a church like ours in Revelation 3, Here I am. I stand at the door. I stand at your door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Jesus wants us to invite him in. Notice that the handle is on the ins the handle of the door is on the inside. He wants us to hear his voice and open the door to him. You are welcome here, Jesus. Jesus wants us to want him to be with us. He wants us to want to experience fellowship with our triune God through his sacrifice that has brought us near. As we again join the disciples in this private place of prayer, we hear Jesus ask his disciples two questions. Jesus does not start with the question, who do you say that I am? Rather, Je Jesus begins by asking, who do the crowds say that I am? Oh, the crowds. They have so much to say about Jesus, don't they? Just a short time earlier in Luke 9, just after Jesus sent out his 12 disciples to participate in his ministry, we read about the Roman leader Herod who had beheaded John the Baptist, quoting what others were saying about Jesus. We read, Now Herod the Tetrarch, or Herod the king, heard about all that was going on, and he was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead. Others that Elijah had appeared, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear such things about? And he tried to see Jesus. So when Jesus asked the disciples, who do the crowd say that I am? They find it easy to say what they have been hearing from voices of many speaking to them. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. It is often easier to say what the crowds of the day, our day, are saying about Jesus than it is to say what we believe about Jesus. We can easily become parrots of popular opinions about Jesus. Even prefabricated definitions of Jesus that we have picked up around other Christians. This is nothing 
new. Over the years, I have read many books by Christian Russian authors as part of my own spiritual formation in Christ. Some like Leo Tolstoy, Fyodor Dostoevsky, and Alexander Solzhenitsyn have helped me see the dark places in my own life, places that Jesus wants to transform in me. In his book, Resurrection, Tolstoy tells the story of a wealthy Russian landowner at the end of the 19th century, in the time of the Tsars. When this landowner named Nikludov was young, he had a strong conscience. He wanted to act righteously in all his dealings and began to do so in some simple ways that alarmed his wealthy family. However, as he reached adulthood and joined the military, he abandoned his conscience. In the story, Tolstoy then shows the ways God leads him to again pay attention to his conscience and to hear the voice of Jesus calling him to follow him. At the beginning of the book, Tolstoy writes about this man's words that many of us here can relate to as we think of our own lives. Tolstoy writes, at first, Nikludov made a fight for his principles. He made a fight for his principles, but the struggle was too hard since everything he had considered right when he put his faith in his own conscience was wrong according to the other people and vice versa. Everything which he, believing himself, regarded as bad was held to be good by all the people round him. And at last, Nikludov gave in. That is, he left off believing in his own ideals and began to believe in those of other people. At first, this renunciation of his true self was unpleasant, but the disagreeable sensation lasted a very short while, and very soon he forgot the uncomfortable feeling and even experienced great relief. And Nikludov, with his passionate nature, surrendered himself unreservedly to this new way of life which commanded the world's approval and completely stifled the voice of him which cried out for something different. Oh, the crowds. They have so much to say about Jesus that is wrong. They have so much to say about life that is not real. They have so much to say about our true self that fails to welcome the transforming power of the gospel of Christ. When Jesus separates us from the crowds and their opinions of Jesus, he then asks us privately, he asks each of us probingly, he asks every one of us individually. Who do you say that I am? As Peter faced Jesus, he answered, God's Messiah. Peter had heard and seen enough of Jesus to be able to say, you are the one 
whom God has promised would come. Peter had come to see what the angels had earlier announced to shepherds at the birth of Jesus. In Luke chapter 2 we read, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes, cloths and lying in a manger. Peter had experienced Jesus as his Messiah in real, personal ways just as many of you here have as well. For example, in Luke 5, we read of Peter and his companions washing their nets by the shore after a night of poor fishing. Jesus steps into his boat, tells him to pull away from shore, and begins to teach the crowds. When Jesus had finished speaking, he then says to Peter, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Peter then answers, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. And then we read that when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boats to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. But then listen about Peter. When he saw this, He fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. Then Jesus said to Peter, Do not be afraid. From now on you will fish for people. So they pulled up their boats on shore, left everything, and followed him. When Jesus gets us alone with him, he helps us to see who he is and who we are before him. Last May 13, 2019, I had such an encounter with Jesus. So significant was this time that I wrote it down in my journal and then sent my reflections to my closest mentors. I wrote, quote, Friday morning at 1.30 a.m., I woke up terrified. Satan's accusations pummeled me. Satan wanted me to throw in the towel. I felt crushed. I cried out to God to deliver me. During this time awake early Friday morning, Jesus met me in good ways that caused Satan to flee. Specifically, He reminded me of the parable of the talents, which not written down. It was interesting for me to think of by then, 2 a.m. in the morning. I thought of the man with one talent who was afraid and buried the talent. He buried the talent because of a wrong view of God. Later on Friday morning, I thought about this more as I continued to write. I also thought, what is my one talent? In my journal, I wrote as follows. My one talent that I will not bury is, one, 
I genuinely love Jesus. Through his sacrifice, he has brought me into eternal fellowship. I wasn't sure that I would share this with you, but I, I felt it would be helpful. He has brought me into eternal fellowship with our triune God, a fellowship I enjoy daily. Two, my one talent that I will not bury is I genuinely love the Bible. It is the word of God that the Holy Spirit uses in my life to teach, correct, rebuke, equip, and train me to live in Christ's righteousness. I love living my life as one small part of his grand redemptive story. Three, my one talent that I will not bury is that I genuinely believe that the message of the cross is the power of God. I delight to see what happens when Christ is lifted up. I love the way the gospel truly renovates lives for his glory and good. Four, my one talent that I will not bury is I genuinely believe that Jesus continues his ministry today with all authority, power, glory, and presence toward his end that includes gathering the nations to worship him. I love giving expression to the values of the kingdom of God now in ways that are real. And finally, my one talent that I will not bury is I genuinely love to multiply God's people. I delight to see Jesus as the head of his body form a church into maturity in him. I finished in my journal, quote, this sounds like a strange one talent. <laughs> Even so, it quieted me as I wrote to my mentors and made Satan flee so that I might again take hold of that for which Christ has taken hold of me, end quote. As Jesus gets you alone with him and asks you, who do you say that I am? Do you welcome his question? In verse 21 through 27, we see why Jesus asks the question, and it's very important for us to look at carefully. It was not to shame his disciples. It was not to point out or judge their mistakes. Rather, Jesus wants to disciple, to deepen, to mature them in their faith and their understanding of what it means to follow him. This is what Jesus does in all who begin to follow him. He affirms the faith he has begun in us and then disciples us to deepen our faith in him and deepen our understanding of who he is calling us to follow him. In verse 21 and 22, he tells his disciples what is going to happen. We read, Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. It would have been easy for Peter and the other disciples to add their own content to their profession of what it meant that Jesus was God's Messiah. As we will see throughout the book of Luke, the disciples often had wrong ideas of what it meant that Jesus was God's Messiah. So Jesus does two things. He tells the disciples not to speak of what they knew of Jesus. 
they are not ready. The purpose for which Jesus came has not yet been made clear to them. And second, Jesus tells them what is going to happen to him. And he starts to tell them repeatedly in different ways as we will see as we move forward. This is the first of many times Jesus begins to speak of his death and resurrection. He wants his disciples to see him clearly, to know him correctly. This Jesus also does with us. This Jesus also does with you and with me. When we first became Christians, if we're a Christian here this morning, Jesus reveals enough of himself to us for us to say, oh, you are the Messiah. You are my Savior who died for my sins. Our danger at such times is to think we know more than we actually know about Jesus. Some of us even fall into the trap of thinking we know more than Jesus. Like what Jesus did with his disciples, Jesus starts to teach us more and more about him. He wants us to see him clearly. He does not want to stay hidden from us. He wants us to know him correctly, to live in fellowship with him eternally, to know his love deeply, and to follow him as he leads. This process does not stop, but it requires that we get alone with Jesus. In my own life, I have found it so helpful to begin my day with him. After getting my morning coffee, of a certain brand, I added that. I sit down in a quiet place, greet Jesus who welcomes me, and turn to his word to hear his voice. For him, I have found it helpful to read from different sections of scripture as part of my daily appetite. As I read, I ask the Holy Spirit to bring to my mind what he wants me to retain. Sometimes this is teaching of who God is or something else, sometimes correcting, sometimes painful rebuking, always growing me in Christ's righteousness, always equipping me to deny myself, take up the cross for this new day, and continue to follow him. I write in my journal as a journal between myself and God. I offer this practice to you. God will not disappoint you as you begin this practice in your life. He stands at your door and knocks. Welcome me in to eat with you and you with me. As we stand with the disciples in this private gathering of prayer, we see that Jesus does not merely speak about himself to his disciples so that they know him more clearly. He also moves on to speak about what it means for his disciples to follow him. Look at what he says in Luke uh, 9, verses 23 through 27. He first says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Let's look at each of those phrases. Whoever wants to be my disciple. This is an open invitation to all. 
This invitation is not only for his first disciples. This is an invitation to each of us, to each of you. When people, uh, whoever wants, but the invitation is to be his disciple, to be a learner of Jesus, to be schooled by Jesus, to belong to Jesus. When people ask you, are you a Christian? It's appropriate that your response would be, yes, I belong to Jesus. I want to be his disciple. And then the phrase, must deny themselves. This is in aorist tense, past tense. As the Spirit of God increases our want to be his disciples, he also shows us things in our life for which he wants us to deny ourselves. He wants us to live as dead to, to be dead to that for which Christ died. Each day as I sit with Jesus, he shows me more things in my life that are not of him, for him, through him. This is the normal work of the Holy Spirit in the life of his disciples, that they learn what they must deny themselves of, what they must live as dead too. And then the phrase, take up your cross daily. This too is an aorist tense, but combine then with the word daily. This is not referring to the sufferings each of us face that lead us to approach God's throne of grace, to receive mercy and find grace in our times of need. The Bible has much to say about God's suffering love present with us in our different times of pain, but that is not what this part of God's story is talking about. No. When Jesus says, take up your cross daily, this is the intentional choice Jesus offers to his disciple to take up our cross again this day to follow Jesus wherever he leads. It's the wake-up call of Jesus who says, this is the day that I have made, and a day where we wake up and says, again, O Lord, I will follow you. I am yours forever. The Bible, that it's such a choice. Nothing in the day is random. Nothing in the day is by chance. Nothing is purposeless. In such a day, Jesus is Lord over all. And then the phrase, and follow me. Now this is a continuous action. Often the first disciples of Jesus did not know where Jesus was leading them. Often they wondered why something was happening to them and to others. Yet they kept following. This is what he calls each of us to do every day, all day, night and day, to continue to follow him. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Jesus then assures his disciples that following him will not lead to disappointment. Following him instead will lead to three outcomes, three assurances. Following Jesus will lead to real life, 
a true self and a confident future. Let's look first of all how following Jesus will lead to a real life. Jesus says in verse 24, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. Strange, isn't it? One of the greatest fears we can have as we begin to follow Jesus is that we will lose out on life. We will lose out on our life. We will miss something of what life has to offer. We, we will fail at this one chance at the gift of life. Jesus makes it clear that this is not the case. A life lived following him is real life. It is his eternal life lived now and even more forever. Following Jesus will also lead to a true and truer self. Jesus says in verse 25, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? What do you want to gain from the world? What are you living for? Are your pursuits, even Christian pursuits, leading you to sit at the feet of Jesus or leading you away from his presence? Are your pursuits leading you to hear his question daily? Who do you say that I am? In ever-deepening ways. Are your pursuits leading you to want to be his disciples, to want to live as one dead to that which is not God's self in you, to want to take up your cross daily, to want to continue to follow him. If not, what are you gaining if you are losing your very self, your true self? And finally, following Jesus will lead to a confident future. Like Nick Ludov at the beginning of the story told by Leo Tolstoy, one can find oneself ashamed of Jesus in the presence of the crowds. It seems easier at the time. Yet Jesus says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. The future is certain. Jesus is coming. The eternal Son of God, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin Mary, who suffered for our sins, died our death, rose for our eternal life, ascended to reign, is coming again. The future is certain. Those who deny him now will stand ashamed. Those who welcome him now will stand in his presence, live in his kingdom, see his glory, experience his grace and truth, and never be separated from his love. So where does this leave us this morning? Where is Jesus speaking to you? Let me mention three possibilities and you likely without any help from me are likely being led by the spirit to have you consider other possibilities 
But let me mention three. First, Jesus may be calling you to come away with him to a private place to welcome his question, who do you say that I am? And for you to ask him about yourself, who do you say I am? It goes both ways. As we come to know who he is, he helps us come to know who we are in him. Don't be afraid to be honest with him. He knows you better than you know yourself. Many times when I meet with Jesus, I admit to him that I know him much less than I thought, much less than what others think. I admit to him that I cannot know myself unless he makes myself known to me through knowing him more. It gets a bit of a tongue twister, but stay with me. There is no need to hide. Jesus will not cover with shame those who welcome him in. As you come, he will even place in you the growing want to be his disciple. Another possibility, as you get with Jesus, he will certainly show you areas where he is calling you to deny yourself, to take up your cross today and continue to follow him. As you read your Bible, you will experience what Paul promises for all Christians in Romans chapter 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercies, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And then he says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. This process of being with Jesus is good. This work of Jesus is pleasing. This relationship with Jesus is perfect. And third, another possibility. As you get with Jesus, you can be sure to experience the work of the Holy Spirit in ways the first disciples experienced. You will be asked to look at what is real life and evaluate what in your life is not real. You will be invited by Jesus to live the eternal life for which he lives in the believer. Further, you will be shown by the Holy Spirit your false selves, but also your true self, which God began in you when he created you in his image, which God wants to restore in you through the transformation of his Son in you. And finally, the Holy Spirit will lead you to see areas of your life Areas of your public life where you have been ashamed of Jesus. Not so you can cower in guilt, but so that cleansed of your unrighteousness, you may again experience confident living in God's kingdom now and yet to come. 
This morning, I have invited you to look at a private gathering of Jesus with his disciples. It's a private gathering of prayer where he invites them in to the question, who do you say that I am? Before we conclude our service with a time of worship, I invite you just to take a couple minutes of quiet in the presence of our Lord, who is calling us to welcome. <laughs>